Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm a sports nutritionist. I'm a former competitive bodybuilder, and uh, I haven't had second breakfast yet. (laughs) (laughs) I just had my first breakfast. This is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, so I'm a coach. I'm also a lifter and aspiring boxer, amongst other things. Highland Games athlete, bunch of stuff. So. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an instructor for Globe University, run my own business, enjoy lifting, guideboarding, and I actually have not had breakfast yet. I'm doing that crazy fasting thing because I just decided to sleep in longer, to be honest. (laughs) I hear hear that can be good for body fatness, at least. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Okay. Uh, Phil, let's start with what you were talking about, Kai Green. What's in the news? Strength and Muscle Sport News. Well, the first thing I heard about it was the was what uh, Mike said was that he didn't sign his contract, and then so I searched it this morning, and he's saying he was banned. Um, he goes into it and said, uh, you know, that he's not going to stop. You don't get this far. You don't get to this point and just stop. Blah blah blah. Um, said he wouldn't go into details. I'm not going to speak negatively about anybody. I'm just going to say that there's more going on than I'm able to say. Um, Mysterious. Mm. Yeah, and then you read down further, and the promoter, Olympia promoter Rob Chang, released his statement saying, yeah, Kai wasn't banned. He just didn't sign his contract. He's had it for, you know, eight weeks or something like that and never signed it. Um, But then upon Kai leaving, saying he wasn't going to do the Olympia, um, shortly after his announcement, high-ranking official and former Olympia judge Lee Thompson announced that he's starting his own bodybuilding organization and it's already attracted some of the big names. So, you know, it could be a split type thing. I don't know. Um, you know, where it's going, going the way of powerlifting and creating even more of these organizations. <laughs> but, yeah. um, well, I can yeah, tell so you, it's remained to be seen, but, uh, you know, Fortress and I, we've been backstage enough to see there is an awful lot of, um, behind the scenes stuff, you know, politics. We were talking oh. about that in powerlifting too, of course, but you know, it's, um, drama and politics and there's money involved. It almost sounds like maybe, I don't know, this is purely speculation, but maybe the grass is greener on the other side. Maybe Kai is not signing his contract because he's tempted by something else. Yeah, exactly. And you know? I mean, of course, I mean, the nature of that sport and how subjective it is kind of, <laughs> it breeds to the uh, political end of it. You know, It does. It does. Because there is no, you made the lift. Good job. You know, it's, it's, it's very, you know, just visually subjective and political. You got to build your name up to win. Well, having said that, I mean, I do think the way that they do that with multiple judges and throwing out the high and low score, I mean, there are sports that are subjective, figure skating, diving, you know, um, but you're right. It does breed the politics more because sometimes certain styles of physiques come into favor, you know, for years at a time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I can't help but speculate that maybe there's something going on with judging standards, but more more than likely, instead of trying to, you know, get away from the giant GH bellies that Arnold's been fussing about and whatnot, I'm guessing it's probably just money. Maybe they think they can make better money. Uh, and let's face it, compared to other professional athletes, bodybuilders, they don't make a whole lot of money. I mean, some of the top prize winners in the Arnold or the Mr. Olympia, yeah, they make enough to cover a next year's drug cycle, you know, and maybe have some <laughs> left over, but it's nothing like professional sport. And then, well, I mean, obviously powerlifting is not exactly a professional sport kind of salaries either. So, oh, yeah. So. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And then if you look historically, there's been all sorts of, <clears throat> if you go back to even like the seventies and there's been different organizations and different splits and this person, you know, went with this organization, so they're banned by this other organization. Mm-hmm. And so it's, yeah. it's been kind of going on for quite a while. True. Yeah, not new. 
That's I interesting. Though. I got banned from an organization just for lifting with mine. I was actually happy. <laughs> yeah, he got banned by association. It was like sweet. I'm big enough to be to get banned. You got the haters so, already. Yeah, yeah. But. Okay, uh, I've got some listener mail, and uh, let's see. I have one, two, three listener mails. Uh, and one of them is going to lead into an article. Let's start with the lifting-oriented one. This is by Joel. And we've had a very similar one to this recently. And I hope we're not redoing this one. I'm. It's early. <laughs> uh, because this, this was from mid-August. But uh, this is through Fortress, I think, from uh, Joel. He says, hello, Iron Radio hosts. I don't know if this is the right email, but I'm giving it a shot. I've been a listener for years, and you've been very influential on my lifting life. Thank you for that. I have a serious question. I'm about to go talk to a surgeon. Now, of course, uh, Joel, I'm sorry, we haven't gotten to this in any timely manner within two days of you going to your surgeon here, but uh, he wants to talk about, he apparently has a spondylolisthesis and a couple of herniated discs. Uh, I've not been able to deadlift heavy for almost a year, nor squat in six months. My back's not getting better with physiotherapy, chiropractic, massage, uh, abstinence from lifting, um, different lifting, lower back work. Uh, He says, I can currently deadlift 225 for sets of four without any increase or decrease in pain. I say this to show that my lower back is not weak per se and that it's really the vertebrae that are suffering. So the surgeon's going to talk to me about fusing vertebrae in the L5-S1 area. Do you have any experience with lower back surgery like this? And if so, uh, is it something to avoid or just to accept? How will it affect my lifting? I've been a lifter since I was a teenager. I'm a young man now at 24. Mm. Ooh, these are serious issues mm. for a 24-year-old. Yeah. Uh, and so back injury is quite unexpected. I realize some help. Uh, I really need some help from those who have seen this before and who I trust. Any advice, Joel? Oh, well, Dr. Nelson, you're probably the closest to being a rehab <laughs> expert. Let me throw this to you. Yeah, um... I actually have a natural pro uh, fitness competitor I work with who actually just had surgery for this almost eight weeks ago. And in her case, she's had it off and on basically her whole life. She used to be a, a ballet dancer in the past for many years. And we we did a bunch of stuff, did some exercise stuff for quite a while. And, you know, we were you know, able to keep it about the same. Um, she had some restrictions. She couldn't do a lot of heavy back squats, things of that nature. Um, trap bar deadlifts for her were okay. But the hard part with that is that a lot of times, you know, just by your overall movement that it can tend to get worse. And in her case, it was actually starting to put uh, pressure on the nerves. So she actually did have the back fusion about eight weeks ago. She's doing a little bit better now, but it's uh, it's a pretty brutal surgery. I don't know if Phil can maybe talk about it. I don't know how it compares to hip surgery, but she sent me the x-ray from it and there's a fair amount of hardware that like goes in there um <clears throat> so i always tell people that i mean granted it sounds like he's probably already had the surgery but if there's other listeners in the same area i always tend to view surgery as sort of the, the last resort mm-hmm. um phil knows about this it, at some point i always tell him to ask the surgeon <clears throat> if i choose to not do anything at this point what's going to happen you know am i going to risk making something worse and then potentially more sort of invasive or is it going to be kind of about the same and that usually gives you an idea of how long do you want to stand with the the pain and that type of thing too um so the other thing too that with that surgery or or that um spondylolisthesis going on for rehab stuff because people ask well how do i find a good physical therapist um, I'm kind of biased to the people who do Postural Restoration Institute or PRI. Um, obviously, any good you know physical therapist will be able to help you out. Um, but just the work that I've done with them, um, I've gone to them myself. I've done some of their certs. <clears throat> they seem to do a very good job with pelvis-orientated low back stuff and you know looking at it from a whole body and integration of breathing and diaphragm and, and that type of thing too. Um, so. I usually tell people, you know, try some physical therapy first as long as your physician says what you're going to do is not going to make it worse. 
And then if at all possible, try not to do any lifting or movement that's going to be in pain. Mm -hmm. One, because you're risking more mechanical damage. And then two, you run the risk of having higher amounts of pain in the future. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, the thing that the bit I know about back pains is as far as fusing, it's the last thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is very much the last step. Um, like Louis Simmons broke his back twice, I think, and opted out of it. Um, and he said he'd never fuse his back. And what he did, he just took the time to slowly build, you know, all the tissue around it up more. And I mean, he's come back and hit huge squats and, and stuff uh, equipped. But, um, you know, I, it's not that fusion is like a you're done forever. But yeah. from what I know, it's a. Um, okay, you're not going to deadlift, you're not going to do this anymore type of thing. It, it very much is kind of limiting as to what you're going to do after that. I would do, like you said, I mean, I <clears throat> talked to the surgeon. I mean, it's the same thing I did with my hip and then go in and say, okay, here's where we're at. Now what happens if I keep going? Mm-hmm. For me, it was, a uh, well, you're not going to screw it up any worse. It needs replaced, so it just, it'll always need replaced. So for me, that was kind of a, my my cue to say, okay, well, you know, I allowed myself to train hard again because it was like I'm not going to drastically injure it further. It's just going to freaking hurt, you know, and just handle it as long as I could. So I would I would look into rehab first and and see what you can do there. I have a buddy down in, in Wichita that was set up for to get fusion, and then but they went the, the PT route, and now it's looking like he's not going to have to have it. So That's interesting. Um, I yeah, admit, I've seen that in a couple other cases too, anecdotally. Yeah, I admit my bias is that i mean as an exercise physiologist this might sound surprising because we're all about creating adaptations and building structures and everything but i was once tossed tossed some dynabands you know for an unstable ankle and given a little ditto sheet to take home and i'm like you know you're insulting me dude so so you're fired you know as my as my uh, general practitioner and i went to a guy I knew who was an orthopedist um and, you know, he did some MRI scans, and he's like, this is completely torn out. There's so much scar tissue here. This needs fixed. So I think there are some things, whether it's the, you know, the debridement of the scar tissue or, or reattaching something. I mean, obviously, there's going to be things surgery can do um, that I don't even, I don't think the body can handle completely on its own. Um, having right. said that, yeah, last resort, like Phil was saying. Um, I was just going to say another thing that I, for some reason people forget this. There's more than one doctor. Oh, yeah. Get a second and a third opinion. I and mean, I third. had to go to four. And a fourth. To find the right one. <laughs> you know, that would, that would give me the answers I wanted, you know, as far as which hip I'm going to get. And it's mm-hmm. okay to shop around. People, for some reason, with, with MDs, they're like, oh, doc said no. Or, you know, and they just accept it. And, Absolutely. You know, there's different ones out there that do different things. And there's some, some that are more up on the latest techniques and some that aren't. You know, there's there's doctors out there that get very set in their ways, and it's like I'm going to use this 20 year old technology, and uh, that's that's not a good thing when it comes to younger athletic populations. Yeah, from a completely non clinical, non scientific perspective, I knew a guy when I was up in Minnesota, and he had um, I don't remember he had three I think lumbar vertebrae fused, and he was fine. He he could squat pretty heavily, um, and he was concerned about the hyper articulation on either end of the fusion right because mm-hmm. obviously if you can't bend three or four uh, you know vertebrae in a row the ones on either end are going to have to take up the slack mm-hmm. and bend mm-hmm. more and then they st- tend to have problems mm-hmm. uh so i don't know um it, it's yeah like it's just such an individual thing i think but yeah. i i think surgery should probably always be a last resort yeah uh, i think there are some doctors you go to and they won't give you the time of day. And then there are others that they're almost too eager, you know, to sort of cash in in a way. Yeah. What you have to remember about surgeons is it's their job to cut. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's how they get their money. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are going to want you to. I mean, I, you know, so. And that's all they know. And it's all they see. Right. So if yes. everything you have is, you know, a nail, it's all a, always a hammer is a solution. Yes. So. <laughs> right. Right. It's right on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um the next two are sort of nutrition related. This next one is a, it's a nice email from Brad. Uh, we got at the very end of August here. Uh, during the most recent episode, at that time it was Iron Radio 327 with Kale Schultz on hypertrophy and stuntmen. You mentioned attempting to cook with turmeric 
for the health benefits of uh, curcumin, but not enjoying the staining. While I can't help with the staining part, I thought you might enjoy these recipes that I got from a recently purchased sports nutrition cookbook. Uh, it was geared toward endurance athletes. Uh, one of the co-authors, Biju Thomas, is of Indian descent, and he shared a few Indian-themed recipes, and he's really highlighting one here, masala chicken rice cakes, uh, and one that I thought you might also enjoy, curry potato and chicken pie. I think he's probably heard us talk about meat pies before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm, obviously I'm not going to go down this big list. Maybe I'll share some tidbits of these recipes uh, through our app or uh, on the Facebook page maybe. He says, full disclosure, I used McCormick Gourmet all-natural curry powder, not pure turmeric. Keep up the great show, and I hope you enjoy the recipes. Brad. So let me just touch on this first one just to uh, let everybody know where he's coming from. So masala chicken rice cakes, three cups of uncooked sticky rice, uh, obviously four and a half cups of water to go with the rice, two tablespoons of minced onion, um, tablespoon of jalapeno pepper, tablespoon of mild curry powder. And see, that's where I tend to overdo it. I'm like, if a little is good, more is better. You know, so I'll throw in like three or four tablespoons of curry powder, a uh, quarter cup of tomato sauce, eight ounces of ground chicken, half a cup of plain Greek yogurt, uh, coarse salt and pepper to taste. And then there's some other additional options. And he does say more curry powder <laughs> as an additional option. And then it gives, the, you know, basically the cooking instructions. But uh, anything like cakes and things like that, I love the portable stuff. You know, because you can take it with you to work, you can take it to lunch, you can be on the go and still, you know, get your chicken and curry and that sort of stuff instead of sitting down to a big sloppy dinner plate, you know. So, cool stuff. Thank you, Brad. I Actually, I'm going to follow up on that in my kitchen, so I'll let everybody know how, how that went. Yeah, you should post some pictures. That's true. Yeah, I usually tweet stuff. If I make something yeah. and it looks really good, I'm like, I'm going to take a picture of that. All right, the next one uh, also lists from a listener. This is from DailyMail.com, and I've printed this off earlier, so I, I don't know what the listener's view on this was, if he or she was excited about it or skeptical about it. I'm going to tell you up front, I'm skeptical about this one. Uh, this is from the female, F-E-M-A-I-L, portion of DailyMail.com. Uh, It's entitled, Beefing Up Without Meat, Vegan Bodybuilders Reveal How They Got Ripped by Eating Just Vegetables and Why Consuming Animals is for Wimps. Okay, so we've already lost half our listeners. (laughs) 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 Um, Let me give you some of the bold highlights at the beginning here. Um, Animal protein has been favored by bodybuilders looking to beef up. Number two, um, however, many are now turning to vegan to help build muscle. And then they're really highlighting this Barney Duplessis, um, Norwich-based guy, almost retired, but is now still competing after he switched over to a plant-powered diet. Uh, Max Seabrook, 25 years old from Kent, describes going vegan as his best decision. So they give some case examples here. And I'll tell you, uh, well, I'm going to withhold commentary. Let me offer a bit of the news first, right, then the commentary. It says, whilst most bodybuilders fill their diets with meat and eggs, a new wave of muscle men and women are challenging the meat-eating stereotype by turning to plant-powered diets. Last year, Mr. Universe was won by Norwich-based Barry Duplessis, who says ditching meat from his diet helped give him more energy and improved his recovery after exercise. And then there's a picture of him. He's an impressive dude. Uh, but anyway, they continue some of the description. It says, the professional bodybuilder describes himself as a, quote, fighter for animals, the planet, and harmony. Uh, and then they go on to say he almost retired a- after a 20-year uh, successful career until he decided to turn vegan. The drastic change saw him gain weight, which spurred him on to continue competing. And they get some examples of his diet, uh, five meals a day. Typical dishes include cinnamon sweet potato mash with broccoli cauliflower and lentil Uh, there are other examples in here i'm not going to go through all of it both men and women here's a quick one aaron fergus ditched uh, vegetarianism in favor of going pure vegan so she even got rid of the milk and eggs apparently uh i would not do that but uh there's some pictures here and Mm -hmm. as i leave through this uh here there's a quote from her um 
no living being should have to suffer for me to reach my goals, is what she says. So I can appreciate the ethical stance that's being taken here, but I think we need to be careful what's the, an ethical stance versus what's a, a biological stance, right? I mean, uh, there's sort of a lot of the terminology here, like, you know, vegetable-powered and, you know, better recovery. I mean, if you look at the actual claims, gain weight, more recovery – well, maybe the guy was eating so much protein he wasn't getting enough calories before. Um, but I think my concern is a lot of these examples, uh, a lot of tattoos in this article, actually, but maybe that's par for the course these days. But a lot of this stuff is either people who are, they certainly look like they're on, you know, they're on pharmaceuticals. And I, we can't confuse that, that the vegetables are doing that. And I think if there's anything to be said about recovery, it's probably the antioxidants and you know, other good stuff in the, the plant chemicals, the phytochemicals that they might be getting more of. It's not the absence of meat that's helping someone recover. The only issue I could think of with meat holding back weight gain would be if you eat so much lean meat that you don't get enough carbs and fats, you know, you don't get enough fuel. Uh, but that, again, it's that's not about necessarily meat. So uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about this sort of thing? Well, I just, you know, this guy claims to be a vegan. I hope his other products are vegan as well and not hormonally, you know, made from animals. Oh, he's, he's definitely true. not natural. Yeah, the, are, the, are the meds also not animal source, right? Exactly. <laughs> so they better be fully synthetic. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, who is it that, oh, gosh, I can't think of his name that we had on that was vegan. Um Jeez. Dos Remedios. Oh, yeah. Dos Remedios. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. He, he is my favorite vegan on a short list of <laughs> vegans <laughs> short I <list>. even like. Because <laughs> um, he's the first to admit, you know, he's just honest about it. You see all these jacks come out and, you know, they, they say, oh, yeah, I'm, I went vegan and got huge. No, you were huge and then went vegan. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's the first to admit that if you're looking to be athletic, if you're looking to make gains, if you're doing it, you know, for health, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. He said, you know, yeah. it's the only reason to go vegan is over ethical reasons. He said it makes everything harder, you know, and he's the only vegan I know of that comes out and says that, you know, everybody else is, yeah, touts how, how great it is for your health and this and that. And he's like, no, that's bullshit. You got to work your ass off if you want to be healthy. <laughs> you have to micromanage everything because you're not getting what you need. And this is from a guy who is vegan. No, that's right. I mean, biologically, let's face it, vegetable protein is widely accepted by the scientific and the medical community to be incomplete protein, meaning it's missing one or more essential amino acids. Animal proteins, whether it's eggs, milk, or meat, are complete proteins. And if you look at some of that work by uh, Stu Phillips' group, they directly compared dairy proteins to soy, and not only were the dairy proteins superior from protein synthesis and, and muscle gain, but the soy, I don't, if I remember right, it didn't do anything. Like, it yeah, was soy really, tends to be the worst. yeah, it was really damning uh, that soy just does not support muscle growth. Now, when you're on a bunch of protein synthetic anabolic drugs or anti catabolic drugs, then, yeah, I suppose you mix your beans and your grains together and, you know, you do a little food combining and you get complementary proteins. You know, you get complete protein in the meal. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of that's despite their choice, not because of their choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's from at least not from a biology standpoint. Yeah. yeah. I wish someone would actually just write an article if they're promoting the the vegan lifestyle for athletes and just come out and say, you know, here's kind of what the data is, but you know, here are the top five ethical reasons maybe you should switch, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, because to me that makes a lot more sense yes. than people trying to argue about the science and all Agreed. that kind of stuff. And I know Mike Mahler is a vegan, and you know he's done very well. I know Steve Cotter recently switched to be a vegan. Um, Dose is one. So I think there are people who can do it, you know, but if you talk to all those guys, they're very intelligent about what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, they put a lot of time and effort into it. They know what they're doing. You know, it wasn't like they just switched overnight and said, oh, I'm just going to eat rice instead, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, and like you said, Lonnie, the one of the studies I think Stu Phillips did too was 20 grams of whey protein compared to 40 grams of rice protein to get the same acute uh, protein synthetic response. Um, and I think soy might have even been worse than that. 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of times you you may be able to get there with you know a semi complete protein, but you're going to need a lot more of it to make up that difference. And as you said, a lot of plant proteins in general tend to be more incomplete. Yeah, this was written by Naomi Greenway um, at the end of August of this year, and I appreciate the passion. I mean, I do, but there's always this confusion, and it's in here, right? There's a lot of buzzwords very early on that lead me to believe that there's just bias. There's emotions clouding what should be rational, strategic Mm -hmm. decisions with your training, you know, like plant-powered diets and stuff like that, or, you know, some of the quotes in here about not harming animals, you know, not making other creatures suffer. That's, again, it's weaving in uh, an ethical, philosophical kind of argument with biological outcomes. Then they present people that are either, and as I look at this, they're either on <laughs> or, mm. or frankly, kind of average looking. Yeah, you know, not to insult them, but they're not jumping out as at, at me really. I don't know. Maybe my bias is that is on the bio side, right? When my wife and I have discussions, it's always I take more of a biological slant. Because, like Mike, you know, I, I'm a hammer, so mm-hmm. I see everything as a nail, and she takes the psychological side, you know. And but um, uh, it's, I don't know. I, from a biological side, I just I, I'm never going to be sold uh, on what. Well, yeah, plant proteins. I mean, the other thing that that gets me is the fact that I have yet to be, and there's probably one out there. You guys, listeners, prove me wrong. Send it in. I have yet to see somebody post somebody that looks physically. Um impressive that is vegan that did was not physically impressive before they turned vegan as an omnivore right yes you know that's everybody likes talking about you know tony gonzalez and crap like that yeah dude was jacked and a freaking mvp (laughs) when he ate meat and then decided to turn vegan his last few years and things like that it's never i've I've just never seen someone that was just a a physical specimen right in our definition, that that did it um, just plant based, right? Or weren't enhanced pharmaceutically? I mean, yes. uh, Andreas Calling back in the day, he was uh, like the eighties and nineties. He had a great physique, and he was a, a vegetarian bodybuilder. I don't know if he was straight vegan. I think he was broader, you know, vegetarian. Which, of course, listeners, most of you know, includes uh, milk and eggs. So a lot of people would call those yes. lacto ovo vegetarians yes, and i can see that working yes and i can too those are some really high quality proteins there they might still have some issues with uh uh you know iron or uh b12 they might miss out on some of the zoochemicals we forget there are zoochemicals like creatine for example carnosine you yep. know uh in meat uh this article toward the end it talks about a couple who founded uh, a company called plant built an online movement of vegan athletes with sixty-five thousand instagram followers Mm. And, you know, that's more than we have, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, they they keep making it sound like the new movement, you know, and there's a new wave. I don't think there's anything new about this. And, uh, unfortunately, I think emotions cloud the issue to such an extent. As a nutritionist, I just don't like when people re- remove whole chunks of the food guide, you know, like the old food guide pyramid. You're just – you're removing whole chunks. There goes the dairy chunk. There goes the meat. Uh, you know, to me, then the – pyramid kind of collapses mm-hmm. uh, again unless you have some very clever planning and that's usually what i when i cover this with undergraduates i say listen um, vegetarian diets they can even lead to greater lifespans longer lifespans in a lot of people but they have to be carefully planned because you're going to miss certain nutrients that come from animals human beings evolved to consume animals and if you don't believe me ask dr nelson who's right here on the show when we went to the smithsonian and i took pictures of him in some of the the um, parts of the museum that were about human evolution and eating meat you know they allowed our larger brains we have enzymes in our gut like collagenase those are only there to break down animal tissue uh so sometimes I think people get too carried away with what they want to believe, you know, that we're not built to eat meat. It's like, no, you can avoid meat, but you have to get clever with it, and it might be a struggle, you know. And everyone's going to be different, too. I mean, you know, up until the last probably four years, I hadn't eaten, like, red meat for probably 25 years at that point. Um, not No real, you know, physiologic reasons of I thought everything else was superior 
was just I wasn't a big fan of you know harming some animals. Granted, I did eat some fish and eggs and milk and that type of thing. Um, but then once grass-fed beef was more available, so I could get it from you know local farmer that had more of a permaculture things of that nature. Um, but I was not under the illusion that I was doing it because it was better or more healthy. It was just more of a ethically kind of based decision that I made. And meat wasn't at that point attractive to me because people would be like, "Oh, don't you want like some big juicy steak?" And at the time, I was like, "Eh, it didn't like avoiding it wasn't like." A huge deal. I mean, mm-hmm. now I chose to to eat it, um, but I think you kind of have to do it for you know, particular reasons. And if your whole time you're doing it and it's not necessarily an ethical reason, and you're like, "Wow, steak looks really good all the time," and you feel like you're torturing yourself, mm-hmm. yeah, you may want to try something <laughs> different. Right, right on. Uh, the only again, the only thing I can think of. Um, that could be the downside. If you're eating three or four hundred grams of protein a day from lean meats, then yeah, your calorie intake's going to come down. You know, so yeah. uh, you've just got to make sure you get enough fuel. And I'm very pro vegetable. Make no mistake. Mm-hmm. Once I wrote an article, and I think TC Luoma re- renamed it "Die Vegan Die" or something like that. And I, that was not my intent. Sounds like TC. Yeah, my my <laughs> intent was that you know, listen, you know, uh, the more variety in the diet, probably the better. The problem in here in the U.S. is our diets are built around greasy, low-quality meats and, and refined white wheat products, basically, or corn, and we don't get enough phytochemicals. So uh, I'm very pro-vegetable, but that's what I've always liked about those bodybuilder diets. You know, they'll show, like, yes, there's meat on the plate, but there's usually broccoli or vegetables of some kind as well. So when this says, why consuming animals is for wimps, yeah, I don't agree. Uh, all right all right let's go to break we're going to come back we'll talk about support gear you guys are going to be better at this than i hi this is dr lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 cover price. So. That's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob... I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So. Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi, everybody. We are back. 
uh, from our break, and we're going to talk about supportive gear of various types. So belts, knee sleeves, knee wraps. Heck, we can even get into shirts and suits and shoes if you want. But, um, yeah, I mean, you want to talk about the, you know, why use them, when to use them, things like that. So, yeah, let's let's start with a list, and I think you're probably the man here, Phil. Uh, just for maybe for some of the more beginning listeners, mm-hmm. what's the what's what's the list of the good stuff? Of like just what all of it? So you just gave a big list. So we got we have straps, which aren't yeah. to be confused with wraps, obviously. Yeah. Um, I, I know people have different opinions on when to use straps. You know, like should you never deadlift with straps? Should you deadlift with straps because your if your grip is the weak link, you know, you need to pile the weight on your back. You know what I mean? There's a lot of yeah. things. Like this. So, See, I mean, there's like, well, we can start with straps. I mean, there's a whole laundry mm-hmm. list from straps, straps, belts, knee sleeves, blah blah blah. Um, we'll start with straps. I mean, I think straps get a bad name a lot of times. I think yes, they are misused. I know there's a lot of people out there that they just don't lift without them. And I am actually okay with that as long as you're not an athlete, if or, or at least a strength athlete. If you're lifting in a sport that requires you to not use them, well, you better get used to not using them. Um, <laughs> you know, right because I've seen a lot of grip issues. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I have Olympic lifters, and let's say we're putting in a two-hour session or two-and-a-half-hour session, and over that session we get in 150, 200 lifts. At some point your hands are like, you know, just grated cheese. So uh, after so many lifts, we'll use them because, I mean, the bad thing is, is you get this group of, yeah, I never use straps. You're a sissy. And uh, the thing is, no, I'm not. I'm getting more work in without chewing my hands up, that type of thing. So at, at some point, even strength athletes need to use them. I'll use them on assistance work and things like that. It's like, okay, my grip's done, and I'm just going to tear my hands up. There's no excuse for tearing your hands Um so uh, I'll use them then. But um, other than that, I mean, you know, they're a good tool. So yeah, I mean, I in general, I'm not as big a fan of straps, but I I agree with what Phil was saying there too. That you know, it depends on what is the outcome of your lifting, right? Like Phil was saying, if you're going to play football or martial arts or, or whatever, and you're looking for that positive transfer from I'm going to get better in the gym, and I hope this translates to being better on on the field and at my sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you better look real closely how often you're using straps. Sometimes they they can be used. Sometimes in certain aspects of strongman they can be used. Again, depends on the event and all that kind of stuff. Um, then you can make a case to use them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. If I find that a client is using them a fair amount, I'm definitely going to include uh, some basic grip work in there. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like two hand pinch work. So just put like two, uh, 45 or 35 pound plates together, have the smooth side be out and you can just do two hands or one hand, just pinch the plates and do deadlifts, mm-hmm. um, things of that nature. Um, I worked with Brett Contreras just a little bit after we're, we're chatting after a conference and he was using straps all the time on his heavier deadlifts. And so we're like, well, maybe just you know, do a few basic grip stuff, you know, try using straps a little bit less. And his lifts actually went down initially, and then they went back up. And I think he added, said like 20 or 30 pounds to his deadlift. And I think he was pulling almost like 575 at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is some weird, interesting stuff too. If you've ever used um, fat grips or a two inch um, axle, and you go to lift it, and use a double overhand grip. And it's yeah. the weirdest thing when it gets heavy enough that you can't hold on to it, it neurologically just shuts your body down. Like you can't move at all. And it is the weirdest sensation. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think there is a little bit of transfer of having, you know, a good solid grip. And everyone knows this, right? And Phil can attest to this and Lonnie too, that some days when you're deadlifting, for example, the bar just feels like so secure in your hands and you're not using straps. Mm-hmm. pretty much that's going to be a really good day, you know. So I think there is some transfer um, with that too. So, Yeah, no, and I agree. I mean, and to, to just back up what I say, I mean, I'd also, like with my lifters, we will use straps, but if their grip isn't a limiting factor. Exactly, like if, yeah. they, if they fail a lift 
because of grip, well, then we're going to do grip more, yeah. more grip work. As long as they can hang on to more they can lift, then we'll use them as a tool yep. to not beat their hands up. So, you know, that's kind of my take on that. And, um, yeah, and I think that's a huge key, too. Um, for deadlifts, just out of curiosity, do you ever test people with uh, both hands down versus mixed oh, yeah. grip and see if like, there's a we'll big difference? What we'll do is, well, generally what I have people do is every day, let's say we're deadlifting, they are to go as far as they can in their warm-ups, double overhand. Gotcha. And then, okay, now at the bar starting to slip, okay, now change. So we try and slowly up that double overhand grip as well yeah. uh, type of thing because it's just, I mean, that's the real <laughs> the real test of grip strength mm-hmm. is just hanging on double overhand. But, I mean, for me, I started using them because my grip started failing even though I had a good grip. I mean, I've lifted 918 out of the rack barehanded. Nice. My best deadlift is 780. So I don't have a grip issue, you know. But at one point when I was doing strong, man, like everything is yeah, very everything grip is intensive. Grip. <laughs> and you know, farmers are like, is this and that? And yeah. my hands got to the point they were just, they were so beat up and sore they never recovered. And my grip started failing me. Um, so I was like, man, I'm going to start using these as a tool and let those things recover. Mm-hmm. Especially on assistance work and things. If I'm doing, yeah. if I just did deadlifts, then stiff-legged deadlifts, and now I'm doing bent over rows, well, come on. It's okay to throw some freaking straps on and hit some rows. You know, then I don't even have to think about my grip, and I'm letting them, you know, not get totally taxed. So, um, let's tackle belts then. I mean, this is always a big issue. Oh, yeah. There's the whole camp out there that, you know, belts will make you weak, and then there's the other side that's, you know, belts will actually actually make you stronger because, you know, it gives your abs an anchor, and yeah, I think it's gray area. It's <laughs> somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. Um what do you do for people with belts? I mean, when when do you put them on? When do you take them off? If in general, I don't use much belts at all with people. I mean, the lifters I've worked with who use them have already been pretty accomplished and pretty good at using them. Um, the one thing I have noticed lately, and it's just purely anecdotal, and it's only been in a couple people, is I think looking back, some of them were a little bit too reliant on belts. Mm-hmm. And when they took them off, they got... There's a big, bigger difference. Um, that's debatable how much of a difference there is. And mm-hmm. I think it, what one person, it was just that they were never really taught how to breathe properly and brace without a belt. Yeah. So they had become so used to using it. And their lifts were, were very good um, that I think, it's anecdotal, but I think at some point you run the risk of potentially having more of an injury risk. So, for example, if you're... Your deadlift is, let's make up numbers, 200 pounds difference between a belt and no belt, and you're pulling 450, uh, that's going to make me really nervous, right? And that's just a made-up situation. Um, So I always like to know what can they do with a belt, what can they do without a belt, and make sure that the mechanics of both of them are good. And then once in a while, we'll just kind of test them just to see if they're kind of still in the same ballpark. You know, if they're both kind of scaling up with their lift and the difference is only 20 pounds, yeah, eh, you know, I know I don't get too worried about it. But if their lifting now goes up substantially and now that's a 50-pound difference, eh, now I'm just, you know, my gut feeling is I'm a little bit more worried. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, my deal on it is, you know, we use it, again, if it's sport. Yeah. And I have somebody lifting and powerlifting. Well, we're going to put on what everybody else is putting on. Yeah, you know, sense, we're going right? to, you know, we're going to, we're going to compete equally, but, um, yeah, I think people, I mean, the biggest mistake I see is people put on belts too soon mm-hmm. and they crank them on like so tight. Yeah. So tight. And they never, they use them as a crutch instead of a tool. Yep. Um, the way I teach people to use belts, first we'll learn squats and everything without them. And then we put them on very loose and teach them how to push out against them. So you're actually, you know, you're engaging yourself against the belt, not mm-hmm. cranking it on to where it is your actual support system. Yeah. You're learning to use uh, it, not just necessarily yes. have it to hold your inside. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I never even owned a belt until I had already, I think I had squatted 550 and deadlifted 700. Nice. And then, then I got a belt. You know? <laughs> and I still, my heaviest deadlift to date in competition is beltless. Yeah, I was going to say, your lifts so, I've seen on video, you didn't yeah, have a belt. I, 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 I didn't like deadlifting belted it, yeah. it put me I, because i was so used to it i'd lifted so long yep. without one it put me in a weird position yeah um now squat i love it but i think the problem is people the belt becomes like their whoopee yes no oh yeah oh i'm doing i got the bar okay i just put 25s on i'm a 500 pound squatter. i need my belt yeah, it's like <laughs> no you don't need it 
you know. And so what I try to get people to do is, for me, it's day to day. You know, if I have a bad day, I'll throw it on earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, it, but most good days, I mean, I've worked up to sets with triples with five hundred in a squat with no bell. Nice. You know, so um, in general, I like getting people into that seventy-five, eighty percent range, and okay, let's put a belt on. You know, after that, if they're if they're one of my strength athletes, um, you warm up without it. Let's say they work up and hit four fifty, they'll hit four fifty for a few. Now we'll put a belt on and we'll hit it again. Now let's feel the difference and work up. <laughs> so. But, yeah, I think they're abused. I think it's one of the most abused pieces of equipment. And, you know, a lot of them are built wrong. You see the ones that are, like, 12 inches wide in the back and then a tiny little strap in the front. I would, that makes no sense. I would flip that around. Yeah, we're backwards. Know? And, uh, you know, because you want that support in the front, something to push against. And it's, it's not really a back support. It's, it's something for you to push on and then create your own in, internal support. And have you seen people, I, I don't know if it was a Lillibridge or I could be wrong on the name, but... I've seen people actually wear the belt up much higher, mm-hmm. and I've tried that just a little bit with one or two people. My thought process was wherever I would see more, a little bit more movement in that area than what I would like, mm-hmm. I would have them try putting the belt over that area to see if they can more effectively brace against it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen any, have any thoughts on that either about yeah, I think, positions. Well, I think a lot of people wear them too low that, are, that have never been taught. Yeah. Wear them really low down around the hips. Yep. And at the bottom of the lumbar spine, and I I like pushing the belts up as high as we can, right under the rib cage. So yeah, it depends on the person. Yeah. It gives you something to push on. When it's down low, your abs are on top of it and you know push out against. Well, yeah, I will say this, uh at least in my situation, I do wear my belts a little bit lower because I've got sort of a twinge. Years ago I was squatting and it it's right over top. I'm just afraid I'm gonna have sort of a inguinal hernia. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm I'm purposely trying to create stability and pressure in a in that area you know what i'm saying but yeah I, i've never really used a belt just for the idea of pushing like my upper abs against it just to mm-hmm. squat more i guess yeah. you know but I, I totally know what you mean i mean the idea there is to try to build you know intra-abdominal pressure mm-hmm. and if it's around the bony part of your hips that's going to be a little harder i think yeah when, yeah when you learn how to use them right i mean that's when you see you know, people come up out of a squat and they're seeing stars or they get a nosebleed and things like that. It's because you are, when you learn how to do them right, you create a massive amount of internal pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can really help, you know. And I think it, it's a tool to be used. And for me, I mean, I think it's because I trained so long prior without a belt that I know how to do both. And so my beltless lifts have gone up as my belted lifts go up. Yeah, um, and that makes sense. And I... I consistently though train without a belt like i said at least my warm-ups and stuff to a point will be done without one so i mean right now i'm deadlifting without a belt again i did 500 for seven the other day with a new hip and no belt so um (laughs) if i can do it you can do it so there you go um what's Uh, next sleeves how about sleeves oh god this is a a sticky situation of late because the latest craze is people trying to get wrap-like effects out of sleeves. And mm. that's fine. I just don't understand it. It's like, the, I think it's because they just want to, there's a whole sect of new records now that are like, oh, sleeves sleeves only. Mm. And so what they're trying to do, they're, they're getting these sleeves now that like are stronger than the wraps Ed Cohen used to wear. And then they'll post, <laughs> yeah, but his was in wraps, my sleeves only. Yeah, but you got 35 pounds out of your sleeves. He got like 10 out of his wraps. <laughs> so, right, now, yeah. I'm a big fan of sleeves, though. That's Don't get me wrong. I'm just not a big fan of this. I'm going to buy four sizes too small and have six people help me put them on. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think they're great, and I wish I would started using them earlier. I'll put my neoprene sleeves on 20 minutes before I head to the gym. And they'll warm my knees up. I'll have all that you know fluid in my knees and things like that from just having a nice warm joint. And they make me feel better. Plus, for lunges and stuff, nobody likes bashing their knee on the ground. It's more comfortable to touch your knee on the ground with a little bit of padding. So I think they're good for athletes. I mean, a nice neoprene knee sleeve that's kind of, you know, snug but not super tight. And they're just going to keep that joint fluid. They make my lifting possible, frankly. Elbow sleeves. um, I do the same thing you do. That's funny, Phil. I put them on before. I get in the car, you know, to go up to the gym. So I probably have them on for a good 15, 20 minutes before I start lifting. And uh, we've had some guests on before that really were suggesting that from a purely neural perspective, compression mm-hmm. can be really good. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think whether it's temperature or the neural thing, um, yeah, they they totally save my butt. I think a, a lot of lifters, if you get a lot of mileage on your physique, not just middle age lifters, but just a lot of mileage. Period. I mean, we had a that listener mail earlier. You know, young guy was twenty four years old. Um, yeah. But it, it can be a good thing to provide a little bit of joint stability. I think if yeah. the if your joints you think are the weak link or if they're aching or mm-hmm. you know, well, and a lot of it can be even mental. That's like I wish I'd have started wearing. It's a different topic that we'll get to, I suppose, and this might be a good segue into it. I wish I'd have started wearing sleeves and like really weak training wraps much earlier, because even if it's just, it's just there's less pain and more stability and you know i'm able to move right and i'm not thinking about my aching knees yes you know, and, right because they don't ache you know which makes me move better you're not moving funny you can focus and, on the muscle and the strength yes you and know. i can move right instead of you know i'm going down and i'm adjusting a movement in the wrong area because i hurt um so i mean i think they're i think sleeves are a good thing and, and you know it's like compression and things like that and then same thing with wraps um now, I don't believe in using strong wraps, except for even my lifters. We don't use our competition wraps until four weeks out from a meet. You know, I want you to get strong without them. If I can get you to squat, you know, if I can get your squat to go up 50 pounds unwrapped, well, your, your wrapped one went up too. Yeah, it'll try. <laughs> you know, whereas I don't see, you know. The reverse. The reverse. Yeah, you start relying and getting really good with those wraps. And, uh. You just don't see it. Now, if I guess the only thing in your mind, the only thing important to you is that big total on the platform, then, yeah, I guess I could see that. I just don't believe in that. You know, I want to actually get stronger. But, um, yep. you know. And, on sleeves, also, like you were saying, Lonnie, if there's a proprioceptive input because you've got, you know, basically so much uh, compression, not necessarily from a mechanical helping standpoint, but interacting with the skin and things of that nature because you talked to pretty much like uh, what phil was saying what you were saying too lonnie that anyone who uses them pretty much across the board everyone i've asked says they feel more secure they feel better their movement feels better um so i've taken a few people and just added more you know knee joint mobility to their program anecdotally if they say i use sleeves all the time and see if i can get some of their warm-ups without sleeves um I don't have enough data to say if that makes any damn difference or not, mm-hmm. um, but that's something I've I've wondered about. And from a mechanical standpoint too, I wonder how much does if there's heat that's generated, does that change you know viscosity of fluid in the knee and things of that nature? Um, I haven't seen any research on that, but it'd be interesting. Yeah, I know th- there's the old school thinking about warming up is just that after about five minutes, I believe you can raise the temperature about one degree Celsius in the tissues. And, yeah. you know, just from a chemistry point of view, reactions sure. would happen more rapidly, you would think, you know. Um, uh, what are we overlooking, Phil? I mean, we if we got into stuff like shirts and suits, that's a whole episode for yeah, sure. Yeah, that is. Um, belts, straps, wraps, uh, uh, knee sleeves. I'll throw something out. What about yeah. all the uh, taping you see in various oh, people God. now? I was at a gym the other day, a commercial gym, they'll remain nameless, and <laughs> the guy was, like, covered in it. And I, yeah, at the end of the session, it took him, I don't know, I went to shower, did whatever, shaved, came back, and 20 minutes later, he was still putting tape all over his body. <laughs> <laughs> From my limited understanding of this crap, I had it done to me once. This crap. Somebody who knows what they're doing. But from my limited understanding is there's very few people that actually have taken the time to actually, like, get an education in it. Yeah. And But there's thousands of people out there at these box gyms that are throwing tape all over the place from watching a YouTube video. And it's, yeah. it's just doing little to nothing besides looking cool. And now, I don't know, it's become a fad to me because all the tapes have, like, brand names on them now and logos. Oh, and and it's, it's more that than anything else to me. It's like um, Tape on I, I haven't seen any good research that really shows me that, man, I need to start taping. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I have used it off and on for probably five years now. I've used rock tape and kinesio tape. Um, but what I do is it's so, for example, I've got a huge midline scar from open heart surgery I had when I was four and a half. And what I found over time was that the scar was very restricted in like the down to left position. So I would take my hand and just basically move it around and see where it was restricted take a piece of tape, tape the top part, pull it across, right? So in essence, the tape is sort of substituting 
hands-on pressure in that area and then I'd let it sit for a half hour and then I would go lift. My thought being I'm trying to get that neurologic input to try to you know remodel the scar a little bit and things of that nature. Um, so I have used smaller pieces on people off and on. You know, in some cases it makes a pretty dramatic difference. Um, but I've even asked a couple of people in the gym, not this guy, but you know, well, what what's going on? How did you know to put tape there? And like you were saying, Phil, ninety percent of the time it's I saw this YouTube video and I, my shoulder's been hurting. And it's like, man, if you if you need to cover yourself in tape to go lift, you've got bigger issues going on. Yeah, you know, I've had just enough athletic training. I had a course in athletic training, right, so I'm no expert in this. But I've known some athletic trainers, and I believe what they say when they say that there's a lot of the sort of wimpy support gear that you get, like, the in the corner CVS, you know, grocery store, mm-hmm. uh, drugstore, that taping is going – proper taping, you know, proper taping of, let's say, an ankle joint to prevent inversion injury or something like that. That's the kind of stuff that's probably going to actually provide the stability and help you from re-injuring, whereas a lot of that little crap is just not going to help like a proper full tape job would. Um, but now we're talking about people who are straight up injured and not people who are just trying to make a joint warm and feel stable, yeah. you know. Yeah, so. and those people in, in, you know, are usually going to go play a pretty higher-end – "Quote unquote more professional sport." Yeah, you know, if you're going to go make millions of dollars this weekend and have someone who knows what the hell they're doing put supportive tape on an ankle, okay, then all right, you know that I can get my head around that. But yeah, if you're just the average dude bra wandering into the gym and your shoulder hurts, you're going to try to tape it yourself based off a YouTube video using a different type of tape. Yeah, good uh, luck. You're good <laughs> luck with it. And you know, there's there's so many of those completely useless little. Um, they're not even neoprene, just cloth sleeves and um, mm-hmm. various little rubber and cloth combo things in these these corner marts, you know, that I don't know. That it's certainly not going to be helpful for anybody putting hundreds of pounds on their back, you know, uh, so most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe people chime in on the listener group on Facebook if you've got one of those things. It's just a real gem, but I have yet to really... I mean, some of the some of these are actually comical, you know. This uh, like Gen Pop support gear—it's just useless. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, I know Phil had to jet. Uh, I got computer issues going on here, so I, let's wrap this one up until next week. Uh, good stuff, though. There's a variety. It's kind of a variety yeah. show today. Well, listener questions, some support gear questions. Yeah. Cool stuff. Okay. Until next week, everybody. All right. See you guys. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting 
supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.